0: Hi, everyone. Uh, Guy Powell here. I am with uh, Joe Bergeron, and uh, this is the second half of his presentation. He's written a great book. I just read it. It's fantastic. It's called The Crucifixion of Jesus. A medical doctor examines the death and resurrection of Christ, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off with his presentation. Um, I know you'll find it interesting, I've been uh, involved with the shroud now for many years, and I've been amazed at how many new things that I've uh, that I've learned. So here we go. Um, linen
1: production, linen production in the first century is known. Pliny the Elder wrote the Natural History, his, uh, his volume, uh, in uh, called Natural History in eighty seventy seven. Now Pliny was a voracious student; he read constantly. He lived in Rome and Spain. When he was too tired to read, he had people read to him, and he wrote his natural history, which is basically an encyclopedia, probably the first encyclopedia. And he wrote about linen manufacture. Um, So we know how linen was manufactured uh, in his time, and what he said was that the hanks of yarn from the fibers uh, would be bleached and then woven in, into, uh, or spun into threads, and then woven into cloth, um, and um, they, they would be uh, stabilized with starch with weaving, and uh, then washed. And so, uh, we understand how that, was, how that was done in that time. Now, the observation of the Shroud of Turin is consistent with that. And, uh, the fibers in the shroud are z-spun. What that means is that the fibers uh, uh, from the linen were woven in, or spun into a thread uh, in a clockwise ma- manner. Now that's an important observation because uh, that would indicate that the thread was spun in the Northern uh, regions of the Roman empire, as opposed to <laughs> what's called S-spun, S spun, S and in Sam, which would be spun Counterclockwise, and that would be in the eastern provinces, Judea being one, and uh, Africa. So that's that's really an important observation. Um, that I I would point out that uh, Saponaria resinue was also found on the shroud. Now Saponaria has hemolytic and toxic properties. So hemolytic meaning it would dissolve the red blood cells, and that is offers an explanation for why. The uh, blood cells or the blood stains on the shroud appear to be red instead of uh, black or dark as you would expect.
0: One and, thing, yes. Sorry, one thing uh, you mentioned in there that uh, the linen was bleached. Yes. So um, it didn't seem like, or it doesn't seem like the the shroud cloth it was bleached very white. You know to be like my shirt or for example where you know they i guess the cotton is is really bleached down to get it you know so so white so um is that true was it just bleached to kind of even out the, uh, the 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 color or why would they have bleached it but not have made it let's say you know a super white kind of like like my shirt might be i
1: i, I can't i can't answer that specifically and i'm not sure that I. You know, maybe they didn't have Clorox in those days. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know that that technology. But yeah. what, what I want to point out in this image, we've looked at it before, but what I want you to see here is that there's a faint kind of plaid background and ultraviolet inspection of the of the cloth here. So you can see a faint pa- a plaid pattern in the background mm. of the cloth, right? And, and that's consistent with Kleine's description of linen manufacture as opposed to in the 13th century when linen would be woven together and then uh, died after, that, after it was completely manufactured. So it's, it was a different process. So similar to like the Holland cloth that was sewn onto the shroud in 1534, it's manufactured differently than mm. the way the shroud was.
0: And uh, just... FYI, we're okay on time um, uh, so we can keep on going for as long as you need.
1: Okay, well you you, you just turn the switch when, whenever you need to just yep. <laughs> right. um, Going on to the cloth characteristics, uh, the cloth measures 437 by 111 centimeters. Uh, they say it can vary by two centimeters depending on humidity. The thickness is 0. 0.34 millimeters. Each thread, has 70 to 120 linen fibers. Um, The weave is a herringbone weave. And that's also a very peculiar observation and something to pay attention to. So I mean, we all have garments that are herringbone weave, but it it was an unusual pattern in that time. Uh, Moving on to the image, the image of the man is yellow or more specifically sepia and the color is only on the top two to three superficial fibers, each of which were about 10 to 15 micrometers in diameter. Uh, The variation uh, in color density of the image was not because it's darker in that spot, but it's because there are more fibers that are colored per unit area. That's called a halftone effect clear on that it's a little mm-hmm. bit confusing i think but it's the number yeah, of fibers yes. per unit area that are colored not that the color itself is darker and then by direct visualization as well as extensive chemical testing uh spectroscopy you know refractive studies you know many many studies have been applied you know there's just there's no evidence of applied pigment which would be easily visible just grossly on microscopy but chemically it's not present. There's no bodily fluids, as I said, aside from the blood stains, which are visibly there, and we can all see them. The blood stains, by the way, contain heme, which is part of hemoglobin, which is the compound in your blood that transports oxygen. So it's definitely blood. There's no question about that. Some people have said, well, you know, they've typed they've the blood to AB, but I, I think folks can understand that the shroud is so old and been handled so much that blood typing cannot be considered reliable mm. um, for that. Right. Uh, here's it from the bridge of the nose. And uh, so that's kind of a dark area on the image. And you can see that there's discontinuous, not every, every uh, fiber thread is, and you can see the fibers in the threads and not every one of them is colored, but just the superficial two or three. And so you can see, see the coloration here. Yep. Now that's, that's a peculiar thing, right? And then here we have the blood. So you can see the separation of the cellular components of the blood that are red, still red. So that would be consistent with saponaria having a preservative sort of effect on there. And then you see the gold colored areas of the, of the thread, which would be consistent with the serum separation uh, from the cellular components of the blood. Mm. Um, in chemical tests, the blood would, could be removed by a proteolytic enzyme and show that there was no image beneath it. And I, I said that before, whatever form the image did not affect the blood, didn't singe the blood, didn't create a chemical change to the blood and the blood and the serum stopped it from forming. So if somebody wanted to paint it, they'd have to paint the blood first and then paint the rest of the image. So that'd be counterintuitive, as I said. Uh, And so uh, the image formation, there would have been pyrolytic effects. It would burn the blood or do do something that would be chemically detected uh, on the the cloth uh, as well as on the blood. Um, Aqueous tests uh, were positive for starch, would be a polysaccharide. Um, and consistent with Pliny's description of weaving. Proteins were not detected on the cloth except where there were blood stains. Again, no exudates, no, nothing like that. So if some folks maybe have thought, well, maybe there was some kind of bacterial contaminant forming the images. So no, those things were not present or, or discernible. There were no pigments, no paints, no human exudates, as I said. And the fire of 1532 uh, created a, this, a, a test to the cloth. So if, if there were chemical substances on there, applied pigment, something like that, you would see some pyroly- pyrolytic effects from that, and that's simply not present. Mm-hmm. It was also doused with water. Uh, you know, you can see the water stains, I didn't point them out earlier, but you can see water stains on there. The water stains didn't smudge or smear the, wear the image or do anything to it. Uh, so those are both tests that give us, uh, you know, Inclination or intuition about the uh, nature of the um, of the image. And I want to talk to you about cellulose for a minute. Cellulose is a re- recurrent cyclohydrocarbon that's bound in a certain way so that we, you know, we don't digest it. You know, it's fiber, right? But if you expose the cellulose to a high energy mechanism, it will extract uh, a water molecule for maybe like a carbon, uh, uh, caramelization reaction or other high energy forms of mechanism that would chemically change the structure of the cellulose fiber. And so if you did that, and you extracted a water molecule, then the, the uh, carbon molecules become what are called free radicals and they become highly reactive and they're gonna react to whatever's next to it. This will create a structural change in the cellulose that would be detectable by chemical testing, by uh, uh, refractory studies, and by gross visualization under uh, light microscopy. And so we see that here. On the left, you see a fiber that was almost incinerated. You see, you know, it has signs of being singed. Mm -hmm. The internal component, medullary component of the fiber is turning dark, and the gross structure of the fiber itself is starting to collapse. So it wouldn't have been long before this fiber was burnt out. But so that's the effect of thermal mechanisms. So people talk about, you know, radiation mechanisms of image formation, that kind of thing. The first, you know, uh, effect of, of radiation is uh, thermal energy. You know, so you expose the, th- the cloth to thermal energy, it will have findings that are detectable as opposed to the right side of the cross where you have a cloth, uh, right side of the, f- the slide, where you have a image fiber that is structurally intact. The medullary component of the fiber is clear. So the uh, image did not penetrate through the cross, mm-hmm. uh, through the fiber, excuse me, and, uh, and the fiber itself the cellulose is uh, intact. Um, so it, this would indicate that it was not a thermal mechanism of image formation. Um, <clears throat> the characteristics of the fiber, of the fiber uh, density is unchanged in the image uh, or unimaged parts. So if there were anything applied to it, the density would change. Again, human exudates uh, are absent. There's no blood other than what's visible. There's no burn effects on the cloth, which would be uh, evidence uh, by uh, ultraviolet inspection. Of course, the burn f- uh, spots we know from the fire, but the main body of the cloth is not, not burned. Mm-hmm. It did, didn't go to singe temperature. So, you know, neutron exposure, radiation effects would cause uh, fiber cross-linking and degradation of the architectural structure of the, of the fiber. That's not present, except in the certain cinch spots that we saw. Um, the color of the image was removed by a reducing agent called diimide. This suggests a chemically mediated mechanism. Now, if you smear paint on your face and then wrap a napkin around your head and pull it off, it doesn't look like you. It looks like some kind of a smudge. Right, that's Mm. bigger than your face. The image on of the man on the shroud is not by direct contact and transmission, the bloodstains are, but the image of the man is not. It Mm. indicates that there was some something transmitted from the body that's interacting with the cloth, forming a chemical reaction on the cross on, on the cloth itself that's forming the image. You understand? Yep. Um, and part of the testing they did was apply an adhesive tape to the cloth, and when they removed it, um, they saw what was called uh, what they called ghost fibers. And uh, and I'll show you just a second. Basically, that that it was a shell sitting on the fibers that they extracted by tape.
0: So, so it actually pulled the, uh, the uh, part of the image off when they did that. Pulled so the image it, off of those fibers and left the fibers, those fibers yeah. and yeah. untouched and
1: un- yeah. unformed beneath yeah. it. Hmm. So in some, basically, uh, applied pigment, heat, radiation, high energy hypotheses of the image are difficult to support. The findings suggest chem- that the image was formed by a chemical reaction on the discontinuous topmost parts of individual hmm. uh, surface fibers. Here you see the ghost fibers, uh, and when Dr. Rogers saw that, it he, he, you know it, it really uh, you know it was such a startling finding that he looked at all the tape that they had applied to the to the image and saw it on all of them. Mm. And so, what you have here, you have a crust or a shell mm. that was removed by adhesive tape. That's where the image is. Mm.
0: That's
1: a startling finding.
0: Yeah, that is. And, it left,
1: it left, it left the, the, the linen fibers themselves untouched underneath it and, mm. and pulled the image, pulled, it, pulled the colored fibers off of them mm. by this kind of ghost or shell or whatever you want to call it, crust, something right,
0: like that. Right.
1: <clears throat> and so on this crust is pigment that adhered to the crust by a chemical reaction.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So, how did it get there? Uh, Rogers uh, proposed the Maillard reaction, which basically uh, is a low energy chemical reaction that's commonly, it's everyday reaction commonly seen. Um, And it's uh, the reaction uh, of a, a reducing sugar polysaccharide, the starch that Pliny said folks would use. In the presence of an amine or uh, a, a nitri- nitrogen uh, compound, um, uh, which would be like um, the effects of uh, decomposition, produce mm-hmm. those kind of gases. And pigment is a byproduct. And uh, the uh, period linen was washed with uh, saponaria, sapinaria, then laid uh, laid flat on a surface to dry. <clears throat> you know, I, I. I, I was in a uh, in developing country, and and I sent my clothes out to laundry one day, and they came back perfect, pressed, and folded, and magnificent. Um, but there was sand in the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then I, I later I saw the laundry. It was the river, and there's a guy by the river ironing stuff.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he was happy. He waved at me. <laughs> yeah, so, do you need more sand?
1: <laughs> well, a lot of the world still washes. Yeah,
0: clothes. absolutely.
1: They wash them in the river and lay them out to dry. Mm. That's what they would have done in that time. Mm. And then by evaporation drying, it would cause a residue of whatever was had been on the, the starch that had been on the, cross to, on the cloth to settle on the uppermost fibers uh, of the cloth. Um, so, <laughs> you yeah. um, know, so th- that's consistent with Pliny's description, and so there we know that the cloth tests positive for starch, and uh, so it it's starting to fit the requirements of the myriad reaction, mm. and then the decomposing c- cadaver would uh, emit um, ammonia compounds or nitrogenous kinds of gases, and, and those things, it doesn't take long for those things to emit. Uh, that's what police dogs can s- sniff out a body that's mm. been killed and those kind of things. So it doesn't require a lot of decomposition for that to develop. Um, so this is how he what he postulated, and I think it's it's the most logically driven explanation that I've seen, that the ammonia compounds interacted with the polysac- polysaccharide residue, formed a uh, pigment that bound to the crust on the uppermost fibers of, of the cloth uh, by uh, a Maillard reaction and uh, created the image that we see. Now the, the image of the man, if it were formed by the Maillard uh, reaction, it would indicate that the Shroud of Turin, or whatever you, whatever you want to believe about the Shroud, you can, whatever you want to believe about it, but it would indicate that the cloth had been used for a burial shroud mm. how else would you reproduce that kind of mechanism if, mm. if this is the correct mechanism mm. and uh, i think it's the most logically driven one and what it would indicate is that it was used the shroud of turn was used by a burial cloth but it was removed from the body before liquid components of decay were present and mm. estimated uh, 36 to 72 hours And here's the shroud again. If we yep. want to talk about
0: yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, it's interesting to uh, uh, to think of what some of the mechanisms or the proposed mechanisms are, and uh, and you know whether whether it's the Maillard reaction or something else. It's uh, it's it's pretty fascinating. I guess though, uh, one of the things that in any of these cases why why is this shroud the only one with a with an image where there are other shrouds that would have also had the image so there you know what makes this i mean i obviously i you know i am kind of an authenticist so um but what makes this shroud this this with that image being from a kind of a standardized reaction as opposed to other bodies that would have been buried in a shroud and also uh, but not having made an image, or not having a re, an image that anybody kept uh, as as long as this as this cloth was was kept.
1: Well, no, no other body resurrected.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, if we're going to take, and if we're going to argue that the shroud is the burial cloth of Jesus, um, there have been other shrouds and remnants of uh, linen found in burial sites, but they're usually. Fairly well decayed because they decayed along with the remains, mm. so we don't don't have anything that fits this. Oh, I see what you're saying. Somewhere. Yeah, because yeah.
0: then because there was a resurrected body, then the the further decay didn't take place. So that so whatever happened after the Mayord reaction then would have potentially yeah. destroyed what was there. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, thank you. Yeah,
1: now just from a scientific point of view, I, I, or I would point out that a lot of folks, I was talking to a young man and said, well, you know, if you want to pose that there's a high energy mechanism of image formation and stuff, then you have to have premises that the shroud is absolutely the burial cloth of Jesus, that the resurrection absolutely uh, occurred, and that when it occurred, that there was some sort of uh, energy discharge. Well, you know, for just... And, you know, at at a basic scientific level, if I can explain the Shroud of Turin without any special assumptions, I mean, if you want to say the Shroud is authentic, and we have the image, and this is how the image formed, because it's authentic, that becomes circular reasoning. A lot of folks are going to have trouble with that, Mm. you know, from just a logical standpoint. But if you can say, well, you know, there's there's no miracle required here. You know, this is Mm. an everyday chemical reaction. They say it's how the the, uh, crust on a loaf of bread is brown. I'm not (laughs) that keen on uh, food (laughs) science, but myriad reactions are everyday, Mm. low-energy reactions that that we all encounter, whether we know it or not. And if you can explain the image of the man with an everyday, low-energy, low-temperature reaction— Um, that doesn't require a miracle,
2: Mm.
1: that's highly superior. Just, you know, we talk about Occam's Razor, uh, or the Law of Parsimony, or, uh, you know, those kind of things where basically the the explanation, things will, the best explanation is the simplest explanation. The the explanation that has the fewest number of special assumptions Mm. is most likely correct. And so if, if, if we can eliminate two or three miracles out of the uh, explanation and say that it occurred by a natural mechanism and there's no miracle required, that's a highly superior explanation mm. from a scientific point of
0: view. Right, right. No, uh, and that makes a lot of sense as well. So, uh,
1: I, absolutely. I Do we have time? Uh, I Yeah, one to- more
0: minute, and then uh, I've got a, a couple of uh, thoughts for you as well. So, okay. uh
1: I wanted to talk about where the Shroud of Turin was manufactured because um, uh, I, I've said before that the, the way that the threads were spun is inconsistent with the way linen was. the threads were spun in Judea. Also, the herringbone pattern of weave, based on archaeological finds that we have, are inconsistent with Jerusalem linen. So, that's one, one thing that People have posed, you know, just a, a textile archaeologists have said, no, that the Shroud of Turn can't be from Jerusalem.
2: Mm.
1: And, um, and based on that, their, their data and, and information they have obtained, that, that's an accurate statement. And so, uh, the, <clears throat> basically, you know, I believe that the Shroud of Turn was manufactured in Rome. And the reason for that is because uh, the z spun of the thread uh, would be consistent with the northern uh, um, provinces in the Roman Empire. The herringbone pattern here we see Trajan's Market, which is uh, basically a shopping mall near the near the Circus Maximum, Maximus. Um, but the floor had a herringbone pattern in it, first century, and that's how they constructed their Roman highways mm. the herringbone pattern was common in in the Roman Empire and I I came across one reference to a, a Roman tomb that had if the first century that had a, a, a cloth that was woven in herringbone I believe it was in England um so and the there was a high, a population, a, a proponent of Jewish expatriates living in Rome. And one reference I read up to 10% of the Roman population, to the point that in Acts chapter 2, when the Jews are gathering at the, at the day of Pentecost, it specifically mentions Jews from Rome uh, and proselytes. So not only Jews from Rome, but they brought proselytes with them to, you know, the, uh, the, the Pentecost. Mm-hmm. So there was a large uh, Jewish expatriate population in Rome. And I think that that's where there would have been enough Jews that they would have manufactured uh, a cloth for uh, export. Because weaving in the first century was all done by hand. And it was every household, even aristocratic households, everybody did weaving because it was so labor intensive. It would take several people a month to make a Roman toga Mm-hmm. You know, in the story of the Good Samaritan, it, you know, when they beat the guy up, they took his clothes because they could sell them because they were expensive. And, mm-hmm. and they gambled for Jesus' clothes. So so we think about, if we think about cloth in that time, you just, you know, when we read the Gospels, we read them in, in, the, in our time, and we think, well, Joseph just ran to the corner store and bought a burial shroud. It's, no. It, it was hard to obtain, and Barry, Barry Schwartz at shroud.com, he believes that Joseph had the shroud in his possession before Jesus was crucified. And when you look at um, some of the translations, allow for that kind of interpretation. Young's literal, literal translation, for example, says that Joseph had bought a burial uh, shroud and that he used that that for Jesus. And so you have Jesus you know, uh, fulfilling the Prophecy of Isaiah fifty three nine that he was killed with criminals, but he was buried with the wealthy. Mm. He's buried in an outlandishly wealthy burial cloth. It would be an extremely it, expensive, yeah, uh, fort from Rome. Uh, you know, high high quality linen that was woven in a way that nobody in Jerusalem had a, a burial cloth like that. And uh, and then a, you know a, a new cut family tomb. So anyway. I mean, I I think yeah. strongly points to that. I can't can't prove it per se, but I I think uh, that that best ex- explains the the textile uh, characteristics of, of right
0: right. Well, you know, one thing too, um, you know, you have Joseph of Arimathea. He was he was wealthy. Uh, there's some indication that he also traveled quite a bit. And if he traveled quite a bit, it may have been that to your point that he purchased the, this expensive cloth from, uh, you know, from his travels, whether it was in Rome or wherever it happened to be, but certainly somewhere where there was a lot of wealth and demand for a high-end uh, kind of cloth, which you would expect to be from Rome, where the, you know, the Roman capital is. The other thing too, when you look at some of the kind of the homespun weaves and how they were doing it in their homes, the fine, uh, you know, the, the very uh, dense thread count that's in the shroud is very different than what you see in some kind of these homemade uh, looms that were out there where the thread count might have been, you know, one-tenth of what it is on the, on the shroud. So it had to have been somebody that really knew how to weave something and weave it very professionally because those the straight lines, even though there's a herringbone, there's a very straight line going across and a very straight line going down. And, and you don't see that in some of the more primitive cloths that are that were woven. Right. Yeah, I think it was a high,
1: a very expensive. But when people, it, it, to me, listening to arguments against the shroud, I think the best one uh, is that there's no burial shroud. that It wasn't manufactured in Jerusalem based on anything, everything they know. Mm. So if you want to make an argument against the shroud, I think that's the best one. Mm. But I yeah, also, interesting. I also think that it's explainable this way that it was an elite uh, burial shroud that was part of Joseph's end of life planning. yeah and, yeah and uh, and that they'd cut the tomb and and that he had gone to extensive measures to provide a uh, you know a, a
0: very wealthy sort mm. of Um, burial
1: for him and his family i'm sure
0: yeah and i've heard uh, barry i've spoken to him about that and he yeah it, it definitely makes a lot of sense and being a you know a wealthy jew you would be prepared for your death you'd be prepared for a lot of things and so he had the money to be able to invest ahead of time in a new tomb and then potentially a very a very uh expensive kind of cloth like that i did have a story for you though before we close and uh, I, I, uh, I I've been speaking to uh, Barry quite a few times by phone. And then I had the opportunity about a week and a half ago to actually meet Barry in person. He yeah. was speaking at a presentation and uh-huh. and it was really he's, a, he's such a great speaker. Yeah. And uh, but one of the things that he said or that he talked about during the talk was that Max Fry Dr. Max Fry was he was the one sampling using tape to pull pollen off of the off of the shroud and then he'd go and classify the shr- the, the pollen that he found mm-hmm. and he said at one point Dr. Fry wanted to take a sample right across the face and put this tape right on the face and John Jackson got into a screaming match with him he says don't whatever you do don't touch the face with that tape and when you're talking about the tape actually pulling off potentially some of the outer layers of the, of that uh, you know, of each of the fibers and each of the fibrils that are in the, in the, in the fibers uh, you know, that could have left an enormous mark on right on the face, which is like the, the most enigmatic or the, the most important part of the whole shroud.
1: Well, now, now that's, that's different. What, what he was, saying, uh, I think, I think the scenario was that Fry took like some scotch tape from Walmart or something, yeah. and put so automatically you have you know something with a thick gum that you're yep. placing all over the shroud and you're you're basically contaminating the cloth. Uh, what the Shroud of Turin research project people did and Dr. Rogers and and that group they had uh, specially formulated tape by uh, by 3M. That, that they would use that that would not harm the cloth mm. still, they, you know so that so they were much more careful
0: yeah well, <laughs> well exactly and I didn't mention tape, that
1: but still they saw the ghost fibers which was a startling observation to Dr. yeah yeah to the point that he pulled out all the tapes that they had used and found it on all of them
0: yeah yeah interesting well and and to that story as well so in the museum where he was speaking, Uh, They actually had the original, uh, what they called the torque applicator. So you had then the tape, the special tape that wouldn't leave a residue, and then you had this torque applicator, so it would only go in a certain distance and apply a certain amount of pressure on it. It was, uh, and I think that's now that I think of it, that's what uh, actually spurred his conversation on that and uh, and and learning about that.
1: No, they were very careful, uh, a very careful scientific group of people, and not everyone that has tampered with the shroud has been careful
0: yeah that's that's true we don't we don't have to go into the restoration in 2002 <laughs> so uh, yeah well anyway uh, joe thank you uh, so much i think well uh, we've gone quite a bit and i really appreciate all of your time and and uh, uh, it was really interesting i know i learned a lot um I was looking at your slides uh, over the last two days, and and uh, and then plus the act, you know, your presentation. It really makes a lot of sense, and and I think you you definitely added to the the knowledge and the and the science base of the whole uh, study of the shroud. So you know, kudos to you for doing that.
1: Well, like I said, it's largely the work of Ray Rogers that as I started to study this, I, I found his arguments so compelling that it's really difficult to think something else. Mm. Yeah. You know, Dr. Rogers was a was a, a chemist and, uh, at Los Alamos National Laboratories and had an appointment at University of California. And he never heard of the Shroud uh when they approached him to go with the the Shroud of Hern Research Project. And he said famously, with 20 minutes in the scientific method, I'll I'll prove the shroud is a hoax. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, contrary-wise. I think he became the ardent guardian of the accurate scientific information of the Shroud of Turin. And we're really indebted to him uh, for for his work and then the book that that Barry helped publish posthumously. Uh, for him and, and uh, Roger's wife. Uh, those mm. are extremely important. I listed them in, in the references I sent you along with other things. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And I'll uh, post them as well as part of the uh, when we post it on online. So uh, with that, Joe, thank you uh, so much. And uh, if you want to reach uh, uh, Joe or get more information, this is the book. It's called The Crucifixion of Jesus. A Medical Doctor Examines the Death and Resurrection of Christ, Joseph W. Bergeron, MD, and it also has a foreword by uh, Gary Habermas, PhD. So uh, I've read it. Um, It is awesome. Like I said, I learned a lot and uh, it is really a, you know, a valuable contribution to the, the science of the Shroud, syndinology and the knowledge base surrounding, uh, surrounding anybody that wants to learn more about the Shroud.
1: It's been a pleasure uh, talking with you, Guy. Thank you for
0: having me. Thank you. And with that, uh, for the audience, uh, please stay tuned for other episodes. Make sure you go out to guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you liked this episode, please rate it with five stars. Thank you very much.